good morning. It's uh, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, grateful for your guys' love and support and just being part of a community like this. It's, it's a rich blessing in my life. And those of you who are new or, or, or visiting us this morning, please don't write us off on account of me. I'm not usually the one up here preaching, so, uh, so don't let that be a, a stumbling block for you. But glad to be with you guys. Um, so if you have uh, spent any time driving around Sioux Falls, you may have n- be familiar with the big blue billboards put up on some main roads here, put up by the Sioux Falls atheists. They say things like, church membership is down to 50% from 70% in the last 20 years. Or confidence in religion is down to 36% from 60% in the last 20 years. Because, as they claim, religion hasn't changed anything. In their content, they seem to be exalting in the fact that church membership is down and organized religion may be coming to an end. As we consider these claims, we are left wondering, is the church really in decline? Or is the work of God coming to an end? The text we are in today assures us that God is working and will continue working victoriously, no matter what the opposition or resistance looks like. My aim in the next 30 minutes is to help increase your confidence that God is truly working out a great personal and global salvation, even when the circumstances in your life appear hopeless. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to John eleven forty-five through 54 for the reading of God's Word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Let's pray. Lord God, we love your word. We marvel at it. We treasure it as the highest authority in our life. It is our foundation and the framework from which we we view the world and all that goes on around us. We, We long that you would open our eyes to behold you this morning, Lord, and affect us by it, Lord. Give us heart affection and stirring for more of Christ. Expand our understanding so that we may know you and treasure you more. Lord, I pray that I would not get in the way that any opinion or um, thing that I I would wish to communicate that would be diminished and that your word would triumph this morning and speak into our hearts a word that each of us needs to hear. Be working and and quicken our hearts to respond rightly. Um, Yeah, so we come humbly before you, Lord, asking to be led and guided by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this text reveals three three truths that serve to, I think, help increase our confidence that God is always working to accomplish His glorious plan to save His children. 
Um, so truth number one is that you can be sure that nothing can thwart God's redemptive work in the world. As we look at this text, we see what is often the case around one of Jesus' signs or claims about himself. The crowd is divided. Following the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the people are again split in their response to Jesus. Verse 45 tells us that some who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But another group goes off to report Jesus' activity to the religious leaders. This event called for an urgent meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a 70-ish member council of the Jews' most prominent religious um, leaders. One of its primary functions was to serve as a court of justice. So following this event with Lazarus, the council's response is desperate. They're no longer debating whether or not Jesus' miracles are legitimate, as was the case with the healing of the man born blind that we looked at in chapter nine, from chapter 9. Now they're saying, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The many signs Jesus is performing are indisputable. But rather than taking these signs as a testimony to Jesus as the Son of God and submitting to him in faith and repentance, they remain in their sinful pride, seeing they did not see. As is evident with these men, minds that are already made up to oppose Christ will continue to oppose him, regardless of the amount of evidence. Unbelief at its root is really a heart issue. The religious leaders' hearts are revealed when they say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You can hear the self-focusedness of their conversation as they speak of our place and our nation and say things, if we let him go on like this, how often our own scheming starts similar to this. We make ourselves the center of our decisions, which inevitably, which inevitably distorts our perspective and results in foolish plans, regardless of how good our intentions may seem. So when the leaders mention our place and our nation, the our place refers to the temple and includes all the religious tradition and authority the leaders have built up for themselves. And our nation refers to the semi-autonomous state that Israel existed in under Roman rule. So to the Sanhedrin's credit, it seems their concern about the people trying to make Jesus a king and thus bringing the wrath of Rome on their heads is reasonable. In John 6:15, we're told that Jesus perceived then that they, the people who had been following him, were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Additionally, in John 19, 12, when Pilate is seeking to release Jesus, the crowd tells Pilate that if he releases Jesus, he's no friend of Caesar, implying the kind of unforgiving response that would come from Rome for someone who makes themselves a king and opposes Caesar. So while they appropriately see the insecurity of both their position and the state of their nation, the council's decision is self-focused and rash, operating out of their finite human understanding. They wrongly believed that maintaining these two spheres was dependent on keeping in good relationship with Rome, who could easily come and crush any sort of rebellion that may arise from this little nation. However, Deuteronomy 7 outlays the condition of God's relationship with Israel. It reveals that their place and their nation were actually a gift from God and depended on faithfulness to him and his promises, not any human strength they could muster on their own. 
So in this cloud of unbelief, Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up with this ultimatum, that it's better for you, again, showing the self-centeredness of their hearts, to put Jesus to the death, rather than that the whole nation perish. Far from a just decision on their part, the council then plans to put this innocent man to death in order to save their own power, prestige, and the well-being of their nation. This is one example of the irony that fills this text. Regardless of their attempts to save themselves, the nation, along with the temple, is destroyed anyway in AD 70. And this destruction was not the result of Jesus' ministry or the result of his followers, as they had expected. Rather, it was due to a constant mad search for political solutions where there was little spiritual renewal. Rather than fearing God and trusting him to preserve them, they were spiritually unfaithful and feared Rome and relied on their own wisdom. As was demonstrated in this plot, for the Jewish leaders, justice was sacrificed to expediency. We may find ourselves in entanglements similar to what is going on in this text. This may result from other people in positions over us or in authority over us, committing unjust acts against us, or potentially a result of our own sin and confused circumstances that cloud our ability to make a wise decision, which then leaves us in a place of heartache, despair, and potential destruction. So, how is God working in this text through sinful and wicked circumstances to bring about his good purpose? And how might that encourage us for our own situations today? In view of the nation's desperate condition, the bloodthirsty schemes of evil men, and the bloodthirsty schemes of evil men, we see the light of the gospel shine through. Verse 51 and 52 says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What does it mean he did not say this of his own accord, or that he prophesied? Second Peter 1.21 tells us, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we have powerful people speaking and planning the worst evil ever committed, the murder of the Son of God all in order to selfishly protect their position. But all the while, God is simultaneously speaking his intent to use the death of his son to save perishing humanity. What a glorious hope. The plan to kill Jesus was not primarily produced by the will of man, but by the will of the Father. Acts 2 tells us Jesus was delivered up and according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Then also, Jesus' act in verse 54, to no longer walk openly among the Jews, further makes the point that no human court could force Jesus to the cross. But both the act and the timing was according to the Father's own determination. So if the worst evil, human evil, and rebellion can't thwart God's redemptive work, but actually serves to accomplish it, you can be confident that no threat or opposition will ever prevail against God. How often in our lives do we wring our hands trying to secure our position? We stress to get a new home, achieve the next promotion, secure a comfortable retirement, maybe marry that dream girl or guy, or any other striving that may improve our standing before others or God. While I admit I do have limited life experience, I do not think it takes one long to, to honestly look at the world and realize that all our attempts to cling to dreams and hopes for this life will come up dry. Brothers and sisters, this text provides us a hope that will not disappoint. Be strengthened in the daily trials of your life. 
God is not merely standing idly by, anxiously waiting for your hardships to end so that you can then step in at the end and spin them around for something for your good. He is in the midst of the trials from the beginning, working them out for your benefit. The council here just issued the death warrant for the man the disciples had placed their hope in. So from the outside, Caiaphas' malicious plan may have looked like the end of Jesus' ministry, crushing the hope of all those following after him. But in reality, the Father was working out the very thing that would save all who believe and follow after the Son. So likewise, our trials may look bleak and hopeless from our limited perspective. But knowing God is speaking his better word, the suffering of his beloved children is never meaningless. We can be confident that God is working all these things for the good of those who love him. Look, he has already secured our greatest need, the salvation of our souls through his son. And what is this salvation? That takes us to truth number two of our text, that if Jesus is not put to death, we will all perish. Verse 50 says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So I think it's fairly easy to follow Caiaphas' human reason, reason for wanting to put Jesus to death. With Jesus' growing popularity, he saw the nation's safety at stake. If the people rebelled against Rome by making Jesus out to be their king, then Rome would come and crush the nation. And Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders would lose their position and power. Therefore, it seemed better for him and the council to just take Jesus out of the picture. And in doing so, save the nation from Rome's wrath. Maybe less obvious is why God would desire to put, the death, to put his son to death. So according to God's divine perspective, and therefore the primary reason, what did the people need saving from? So in the beginning, Adam and Eve first rebelled against God's revealed will. They despised his good provision and preferred to live according to their own wisdom. In this way, sin entered the world. With it, all forms of death and destruction took root in the created order. This had implications on, our, on the planet, our bodies, our thinking, our work. Romans 8 talks about the whole creation being subjected to futility. Following the example of Adam and Eve, every human heart since has rebelled against God and fallen short of his glory. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes our condition this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of our bodies and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the state of every human being that has ever lived, being by nature children of wrath, sowing to the passions of our own flesh and reaping death. You can see the effects of sin all over the place. Things are not as they should be. Work is toilsome. Relations at home are broken. People oppress other people for their own advantage. Addiction runs rampant, leading to the abuse of self and others. The list could go on and on. Since humanity has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for worship of created things, God has given us over to the depravity and the futility of our minds to do what ought not to be done, thus leading to our perishing. Furthermore, God is perfectly righteous and so cannot tolerate evil doing. 
Habakkuk 1.13 says that the Lord's eyes are too pure to even look on evil. In rebelling against God and despising his word and his revealed will, we have committed the ultimate evil. God is infinitely worthy of worship and praise. For from him is life, fullness of joy, and every good gift. Yet in rejecting him, we have stored up judgment against ourselves. Every offense we commit bears a consequence in proportion to the party offended. So take, for example, if you slap your brother, you might get slapped back. Um, If you slap your mother, you might get grounded or lose some other privileges. Uh, Let's say you slap a police officer, you might get a fine or taken to jail. Um, But let's say you slap the president, you might get even arrested or shot. So as this analogy demonstrates, the higher the position of the offended party, the greater the consequences. So how much greater, then, is the consequence when we scorn the glory of the infinitely valuable creator and king of the universe? Therefore, much greater than the futility of our existence in a fallen world is the desperate condition in which we stand before a holy and just God. Unlike the Sanhedrin, whose court exchanged its justice for its own convenience, God stands firm in his justice. There must be some punishment for our offenses against him. To this, someone may ask, what's all this talk about God's glory and wrath and punishment against sin? What about God being all about love? Can't God just, you know, excuse us because he loves us so much? Well, in order for for love to actually have any substance, there must be a hatred for what opposes it. God loves babies, so he hates abortion. God loves marriage and families, so he hates sexual immorality. God loves generosity, so he hates greed and all manners of extortion. You see, God would not be truly loving his creation if he allowed sin, which destroys us, to go unpunished. In view of this, we see the overwhelming beauty of the gospel. While Caiaphas sought to kill Jesus so Rome would not destroy them, God planned to kill Jesus so he would not have to destroy us. Jesus was offered up by God to redeem sinful humanity. Again, looking at verse 50, it says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, speaking according to the Spirit of God, declares, It is better. It is better? What? What a glorious God. What kind of love is this? That He would see that it's better that the spotless, lovely Son of God die in the place of rebellious humanity. In love... God has seen it better to empty himself of glory, the glory that he has had for all eternity, independent of any creation, to come down as a man in order to bear the weight of the world's sin at the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the great exchange and the good news of the gospel. Jesus takes on our unrighteousness and bears the punishment of our sins on the cross so that we may take on his righteous life. Lest anyone presume upon this grace, let's look at 2 Peter 2.4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. God chose not to save the angels who rebelled, leaving them to remain in their separation from him. He did not have to save us either. 
but in the riches of his mercy and love, he considered it better to save rebels by not sparing his own son. What a great and marvelous mystery is this salvation, one in which even angels long to look. So if you are tempted to believe there is no forgiveness for you, your sins are too great, or God's arm is too short to save, or your current sufferings are too much, or maybe that Satan is in your face bringing condemnation, look at what Christ has done. God stepped down out of glory, breaching time and space, and endured ultimate suffering so that you may live. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with us, with him, graciously give us all things? Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Every day look to Christ and be reminded of what a great salvation he has won for us, for his own. And who are his own? This, this takes us to truth number three. That is that Jesus' death purchased for himself an ethnically diverse church. In verse 52, it says that he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. According to this text, the salvation that Christ won at the cross was not merely for the nation of Israel, but for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. In John 10, 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus speaks of sheep outside the nation of Israel, whom he must bring in. Isaiah, prophesying about Christ's work, says that it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And a few chapters later, he says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to, those, to him besides those already gathered. These texts, along with John's gospel, point to the breadth of Christ's redemptive work. It is not only for the nation of Israel, but for the ethnos, all nations. Revelation 5 gives a picture of what this looks like in its fulfillment. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The church, those blood-bought saints, are and will be gathered together from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation into one people of God. This truth has huge implications for how we ought to live in the world, both missionally and in our society. Racial unity and reconciliation is not just a social issue. It is an inevitable working out of the gospel in our society. Any evil thought of racial superiority must not be allowed to live in our minds. In the gospel, we are set free from anxiously or pridefully clinging to any government policy or earthly system we have come up with because we have our hopes set on the certainty of the kingdom of God, which will not fade away. This enables us to think wisely and respond rightly to the events going on around us in our society. 
Jesus has redeemed the children of God scattered abroad. The better which Jesus died for on the cross was not simply your individual reconciliation to God. It was a blood-bought people who would live to proclaim his glory and delight in his worth. This text reminds us of God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. As his children, we inherit this wonderful purpose. We live to delight in God through the gospel and spread this joy to the ends of the earth. God will accomplish this work to bring in his children scattered abroad. But how then would would God call our local church to leverage our resources to join in spreading the gospel both here in our city and to the ends of the earth? In God's providence, he has brought people from the nations, the ethnos, to our city. There's, There's people living among us from places like Bhutan, Nepal, Somalia, and other places where they've had little to no access to the gospel. For years, missionaries have been seeking to gain access into these countries. Now God, in his wisdom and divine providence, has brought them next door to us. So as we continue in prayer to faithfully respond, a few small ways members in our church have begun is by launching a new missional community focused on reaching out to immigrants, specifically with the Somali people. This is done through tutoring, babysitting, helping with job applications, or adopting a family or store. Additionally, our our church has partnered with a group of pastors from a South Asian country to help equip them to better serve their people, as well as other partnerships with Sovereign Grace churches and church planting efforts around the world. So the opportunities to get involved are numerous. Indeed, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray that God would send out more laborers and and give us here clearer vision for how each of us may get involved. As we look around the world, I I know it's easy to to feel discouraged by all the brokenness and seeming decline in morality going on around us. Even when you look at your own life and your weakness to do the things you want to do, be assured that God is accomplishing this mission to save a people for his own possession. In the 1700s, Voltaire, a French philosopher and influential thinker of the Enlightenment, wrote volumes against Christianity and the Bible. In 1776, he predicted, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked at upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. As time would go on, within 50 years after his death, in an ironic twist of providence, the very house in which he once lived and wrote his attacks against Christianity was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts. And the printing presses he used to print his irreverent works was used to print Bibles. This story illustrates God's ongoing triumph in the world. The church of God has withstood and grown over the last 2,000 years against every form of government, worldview, and philosophical attack. It has continued to spread over all the earth as the gospel transforms the lives of people from every time, culture, and place. Kingdoms of earth rise and fall, but the kingdom of our Lord is for eternity. Jesus has purchased on the cross an eternal salvation that cannot be snatched away. So for those of you here who are trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, be encouraged and emboldened by the great and secure salvation that is yours. For those who have not, I plead with you, come. Do not harden your hearts as those who saw Christ's miracles and rejected him. Let go of the futile attempts you are making to control and save your life 
and come with faith and repentance to the God who stepped down out of glory to give his life so that you will not perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this great salvation. We, we love your work, how you have been working sovereignly in all of creation and all of history to accomplish your purpose, to save and ransom and redeem a people for your own possession. And Lord, we, we are a, a, a taste of that here in our local gathering. We're grateful for the gathering of your church. Embolden us, strengthen us according to your words. Strengthen those who are faint-hearted or weary or discouraged. Assure them of this great salvation, of your work on the cross, Lord. Magnify the glory of Christ in our sight that uh, we may be emboldened to go out and live missionally in our places of work and um, communities and whatever you would give us to do, Lord. We want to be faithful witnesses and um, increase our joy in this good news of the gospel. We, We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.